Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at antiochatx.com. Hey, good morning. That was quite an intro. I, I like starting my day like that. That's awesome. Um, like you said, I'm Liz Griffin. I have the privilege and honor of being one of your pastors here at Antioch Austin. Um, if you're wondering and you don't know, he mentioned a lot has happened this last year, and what he's referring to is that I actually had a pretty massive stroke, um, and God has done big things and restored me in massive ways. That's not what I'm talking about this morning, but I thought some of you might wonder, what in the world is he referring to? That's what he's talking about. But let me just say, welcome to church, you guys. And not only that, welcome to summer. It is summertime. I feel refreshed just saying it. I know some of you may already be a week or two into your summer break. Some of you may be adults and you don't have summer break anymore. Uh, But for those of us who have kids and stuff, we just started our summer vacation The kids wrapped up school just a few days ago, and we have been summering hard. We've been grilling our meals. We've been at the pool. We were at Typhoon Texas all day yesterday. We are living summer up in the Griffin household. And then tomorrow, our oldest, Sophie, who just finished sixth grade, is going with the youth and the families to Tijuana, Mexico on the impact trip. And you know, as I was uh, helping her get ready, this past weekend, running to Target, getting all the little travel-sized everything, I was getting a lot of like FOMO, that fear of missing out, because I hope you guys are prepared that when they come back, we're going to hear about some miracles that God did. I don't know about you, but my expectation level for that team is up here, that God is going to move, that that nation is going to be impacted, that lives are going to be transformed, they're going to see the sick healed, and I am kind of sad that I'm not going, but she's going as an extension of our family. But I am so expectant next week or the week after that to hear the stories of what God's done because, you know, let's be honest, who in this room doesn't want to be a part of seeing a nation changed or someone, the trajectory of someone's life shifted or, or the sick healed, right? We all want to be a part of something big and significant. You're waving the hanky. I like it. I like it. Um, we all want to be a part of that. And, and you know, I'm going to be talking about that desire that we have in us to make an impact and to influence things here in just a second. But before I dive into it, a little audience participation, a little show of hands. Who here has ever heard of the Batter-Meinhof phenomenon? Oh, one. Just recently, which is actually going to prove my point perfectly in a moment, which is so you may not recognize that name, Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, but I promise that you've experienced it. And when I explain it to you, you're going to say, oh, yeah, totally. I just didn't know that's what it was called. So... You're buying a car, and you are researching Honda Pilots, and you're looking at the pictures of them, and you're researching the different years and the colors and reading reviews, and you're thinking about the pilot, and you get in your car to go to work, and what do you see all over I-35? Honda Pilots. They're everywhere. You know, you pull into work, they're in your parking lot, you get home, your neighbor has a Honda Pilot, and you've never noticed it before. Or maybe a friend is telling you about some obscure band that you've never heard of. And then at work, two days later, your friends are telling you 
your coworkers about this concert they went to, which is the same obscure band that you'd never heard of until two days ago, and then you hear their song on the radio, right? It's like as soon as you become aware of something, you start seeing it everywhere, just like you, you just heard about it, and now here I am talking about it. Yes, this is, this, is, this is not planned, but this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about and what this phenomenon is, and it totally happened to me this week when I was preparing this message, because I'm going to be talking today about our longing as people for God to use us in significant and profound ways, and then what do I see everywhere this week? People talking about how to make an impact, how to be significant. In my inbox, I had um, this like promotional thing about how to grow my email list. I don't have an email list. Apparently, I'm supposed to, and it's supposed to be growing. And it's, you know, hey, grow your influence through your email list and, and get more followers and get traction. And here's how to start a business. And got an invitation to a conference that's going to give me this testing to tell me how I'm uniquely made and shaped. Like, it was everywhere this week on my Instagram and in my emails. And then I watched a movie with my kids, Chicken Little, a really, really profound movie. And you know, it was in there too. Like I relate to Chicken Little, guys, I get him. He's just a little dude that wants to do something big, right? Like the theme of it was in there too. And, and like I said, I mean, I get that because I'm so that way, and I think my whole life, I'm like, oh, I'm just this little person, but I, but I want to matter, you know? I want to do something big. I want to make a, a big impact, and even as a kid, I was so drawn in school when we'd have our history lessons, and just these key figures in history who did something massive, who shaped something, you know, in, in medicine, in business, in government, whatever it is, literature, you know, or I would read these biographies of, of missionaries and of, of businessmen and scientists and inventors. And as a kid in history class, in our units, you know, we're not talking about the woman who taught third grade for 39 years and impacted a generation. Or we don't hear about the small business owner who was just a good employer and invested in the families of his employees. Like, that's not what we hear about. We hear about these big A-list people. And so as a kid, in my immaturity, I took that and I thought, okay, if I'm gonna make an impact, if I'm gonna make a real difference in the world, I have to be amazing at something. Because these people in the books, I mean, they were phenomenal. They were incredible athletes or business owners or just, really knew how to shape and form government. I mean, you know, these were like the, the big people doing the big things. And so I knew, okay, if I want to do something profound or significant with my life, then I therefore have to figure out what is it I'm going to be so good at that I can use it as a medium to impact change. Do you see what I'm saying? So then it started at a young age, this deep desire to figure out what is it that Liz at Mulkey at the time, was going to be really good at. And y'all, I tried everything. Let me tell you what I tried. I did gymnastics, in which they told me to quit because I was so bad. <laughs> Literally. They said, why don't you try ballet? So I tried ballet, and I was just as bad at that. I did violin. Two years of violin. Didn't progress past beginner. So I'm up here at that point. Everyone else is down here because I'm with six-year-olds now because I'm not progressing like everyone else is. So I just keep getting the new kids. So I move on from that. Uh, I did Russian folk dancing. No lie. I lived in Russia at the time, so it's not as bizarre. But still, Russian folk dancing, choir, art, tennis, swimming, ping pong. 
I took ping pong lessons, you guys. I was gonna find my thing. And in fifth grade, there were basketball tryouts that were happening in Waco, where I lived at the time. Now, I didn't really care about playing basketball, but I thought, you know, I've never tried that. Maybe, maybe that's going to be the thing. I show up, and it's like, that's your thing, Liz. There you go. So my friends were trying out, and I go with them to the basketball tryouts. Now, you go into the Woodway Family Center gym, and it's a long line, and all the parents are sitting and watching because one person tries out at a time. And you go, and you get the ball, and you do this dribbling drill, and you do a layup, and then you do another drill, and you go to the free throw line, and you shoot. So it's my turn. And I get the ball, sweaty little hands, and I do the thing, and I run for the layup, and I made the basket. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, yeah. So then I do, you know, the other little drill, get to the free throw line, shoot. Nothing but net, you guys, nothing but net. I was feeling good about my life. Another, what is the hanky waves? You guys, I'm loving you today. Did the memo go out to bring a hanky and wave it? It did. This is, wait, for real. I don't, I'm not even going to, okay. I'm like so lost right now. There's like 50 hankies waving in the air. It's, it's amazing. Let this be our new normal. But anyway, so I'm at school that week and, you know, people are talking about me and I'm walking down the hall being like, yes. This is what it feels like to be amazing. This is what it feels, this is what everyone else is feeling like that I've never felt, that I've dreamt of feeling, right? Significant, amazing. I was feeling so good. People were talking about me. I was legendary that week at Woodway Elementary School. And then the season started. Oops, exactly, exactly, oops. I don't think I made a single basket the entire season. I was the weakest player on the team. I was clumsy, I was awkward, I would shoot baskets the wrong direction for the other team. Like, I was bad. It was a fluke in the universe during tryouts that I made those two baskets because I failed miserably the entire rest of the season. And I had those parents that didn't let you quit if you signed up to be on the team, right? They weren't, they weren't gonna, you know, they didn't force us to do something, but if we signed up, we were gonna finish. So, I, I mean, I would have bailed after the first game of the season, but they made me stay, which I guess in hindsight is good. I don't know. The scars are still pretty deep about that basketball season, but I was so excited when the basketball season ended because I thought, oh, just please, no more basketball. I just want this to end so I don't have to keep getting embarrassed and humiliated. Except that I did keep getting embarrassed and humiliated because I still was on this rhythm of trying to find that thing, right? And so I would try, and then I would fail. And, you know, I didn't always fail miserably. Sometimes it just kind of was like, mm, you know? I just wasn't ever great. And I tried and tried. I mean, I was the kid. I had heart, you guys. I had heart. Me and Rudy. If you don't know who Rudy is... Cancel your afternoon plans and watch Rudy. It's the best movie. But me and Rudy, like, we had heart. And we just, we just wanted to be on the team. And we just wanted to matter. And it was thing after thing after thing like basketball where it just didn't pan out for me. I, I did, yeah, I did found the AP Philosophy Club at my high school, which was pretty legendary. And I'm sure they are all still talking about it. But that was, that was the one thing. Other than that, I was just your average B-team, JV girl. And, but I had that desire to matter, right? But I was this average person. 
And I mean, did you guys hear the verse that Chris read during worship? You know, scripture is so full of these phenomenal things. Like kingdom work is not average stuff. Setting captives free, changing, changing the trajectory of a nation, bringing people from darkness to life, healing the sick, making disciples. I mean, that is not average work, but we are average people, at least me. So how do average people play a part in something as exceptional as what Scripture shows us and calls us to be? And you know, what I realized as I grew up is that to make an impact and to be influential in the kingdom, I actually don't have to be great at anything. Kingdom impact and influence comes simply from surrendering to God what's already in our hands and letting him use it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And if you've read scripture much, you see that actually from beginning to end, we have so many examples of God using ordinary people with ordinary skills and gifts in tremendous and exceptional ways. You know, in 1 Samuel, we see David, a boy, face a giant with sticks and stones. In Esther, we see a girl stop genocide, not because she's a military strategist or a head of state. You know what God used in Esther's life to stop genocide of the Jewish people? He used her gift of hospitality. The girl knew how to throw a party. And if you've ever been around someone who has a gift of hospitality, they create a space that's safe and comfortable and warm and walls come down. And it was in that place that Esther approached the king and petitioned for him to stop the upcoming genocide. And he did. He used hospitality to stop a genocide. You keep reading all the way through the New Testament and you see stories like when Jesus used a little boy's lunch of loaves and fish to feed 5,000 people. Beginning to end, scripture is full of God using ordinary, simple, basic things to do extraordinary kingdom work. And so if you are taking notes today, if you're that kind of person, if you brought your hanky and your notebook, props to you, the title of the message is What's in Your Hand? And I want to deep dive into the Old Testament here and unpack a little bit of the process of Moses learning to use what God had put in his hand. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Moses, if you've been to church a lot and you grew up with the felt boards and the little sticky felt people that moved, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Obviously, I'm the only one that grew up this way, but that's okay. You did too. All right. You know. And if you don't know, it's fine. Buy some felt, stick things on it. You get the idea. Um, But if you're familiar with Moses at all, you recognize that name. You know that God used him in really significant ways to bring the nation of Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. He parted the Red Sea. God gave him the Ten Commandments. He was a pretty big deal in the Old Testament. Now, Moses, a little history on him, he had been born into a Jewish family that was living in Egypt. And at this time, the Jews were slaves under Pharaoh. They were enslaved people. And Pharaoh was so nervous because the Jewish population was growing and growing. He was afraid of an uprising. So what uh, Pharaoh decided to do at this time was to, as soon as a baby Hebrew boy was born, they were to be killed. Moses' parents obviously did not want that for their son, so they made this waterproof um, basket, put him in the Nile River, and put him in it. And who picks him up out of the river? Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses is actually raised in Pharaoh's household as a son. And when he's an adult, he sees an Egyptian master beating his Hebrew slave. 
And this anger rises up in him, this holy, righteous anger. And he steps in, but in that anger, he actually gets so furious that he kills the Egyptian slave master. And then he's terrified of what Moses is going to do. So he runs away to a land called Midian, where he meets a priest, and he marries that priest's daughter. And that's where we're actually going to intersect the story of Moses this morning in Exodus 3 and 4. So let's read Exodus uh, 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. It's a good idea. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. So when we first meet Moses in this scene, he is in the wilderness with some sheep. He's a shepherd. Basic blue collar stuff. You don't need pedigree. You don't need education. He's a shepherd. Now, these weren't even his own sheep. They were his father-in-law's sheep. And another thing that really stands out as unusual about this passage is, is typically the youngest of the family is the one that's doing sort of this nomadic shepherding of the sheep. As you would get older, you would move on to working in the market. You'd sell the wool. You'd conduct the trading, kind of all of those business aspects. You're not really in the wilderness anymore with the sheep. Usually, that is just for the young. But here's Moses. He's 80 years old, out in the wilderness, tending sheep. Now, I can't say for sure, but Moses is a human. Therefore, I imagine that as an 80-year-old in the wilderness, tending sheep, he probably feels a little small and a little insignificant, right? I mean, he's 80. When you're 80, you're not still supposed to be doing that. And we know what that feels like, right? There's times where we think, man, at this stage in my life, I'm not supposed to still be single, or my kids aren't still supposed to be struggling with that, or at this stage of my business, we should be much more profitable, or my podcast should have more subscribers, or whatever it is, this sense that, man, by now I should be further along than I am, and that feeling of being left behind, and looking at, I'm sure Moses was looking at other 80-year-olds thinking, man, they're in the markets, and here I go out into the wilderness again, right? That's not a very fun headspace to be in, but I think that's probably a little bit of Moses' headspace at this moment, is feeling a little insignificant and a little left behind by life. And if we were to keep reading in Exodus 3, we'd see that after God got Moses' attention, he goes on to tell him that, he, that God has been hearing the cries of the Israelites who are enslaved in Egypt, and he wants to deliver them. And not only is God wanting to deliver them, he's wanting Moses to be a part and to be used to do it. Right, God just laid out a massive invitation, that human desire, I want to do something big and important, right? I mean, God just gave it to Moses. And that's where all of Moses' excuses start to come up. And we can all relate to these things that Moses says. He talks about, you know, I'm nobody, I'm not good at communicating, no one's going to follow me, I don't have what it takes. It's the same stuff we deal with now. I think that's what's so fun about when you read scripture and you watch people's interactions A lot has changed, but almost nothing has changed when it comes to human nature, right? We still deal with the same obstacles, the same insecurities, the same fears. And Moses is laying out in this passage of Scripture all of those things before God, all of his excuses why he can't do what God is saying he needs to do. And 
I'm guessing Moses would like God to do what I would like God to do, which would be to go over all of my concerns with like a fine-tooth comb, right? Line by line. Okay, I, I hear you, Moses. But you know, I think, and lay out what he thinks, and like go objection by objection, God addressing it. But that's not what God does, though. Let's read in verse 11. Moses says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Now, Moses is giving voice to the fact that he doesn't feel like he has anything significant in him, right? He's just a shepherd. He doesn't have anything that he thinks is meaningful. And you know, what's even worse for Moses in this case is that if you read other passages of scripture or other historical texts, you actually see that in the nation of Egypt, shepherds were the lowest of the low. So it's not just Moses saying, hey, I'm an average person, but saying, hey, the place you're asking me to go to, I'm rejected for who I am, for what I bring. It's going from bad to worse in Moses' mind here. And what does God say to that, to Moses saying, who am I? You know, what do I have? Does he go into detail of saying, hey, Moses, look, let's just, let's look at the symbolism that's happening here, Moses. You're leading these sheep in the wilderness, and it's in preparation that you're going to lead my people through the wilderness for 40 years. And, you know, he doesn't go into all the symbolism and the step-by-step of how everything Moses has been through is preparing him for such a time as this, you know, which when we zoom out and we're reading scripture now, we see all the ways God has been preparing Moses. But Moses doesn't see that in the moment. We don't see that in the moment. Those are things you only see after you've walked out in obedience, right? So he's laying those things out before God, and God does not give him an explanation. For Moses saying, why me? Why this? God doesn't give him an explanation, but he does give him a promise. This is what God says to that. He says in verse 12, I will be with you. See, that's God's response, short and sweet. He doesn't speak to Moses' insecurities. Line by line, all he says is that he'll be with us. He may not provide us with all the answers that we want to know, but he always promises his presence. Let's move on to verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? Man, what a real thing, right? That feeling of like, what if I step out and no one follows? What if I obey and nothing happens? What if I start that life group and no one shows up? Or worse, they come the first week and then they never come back. You know, what if I step out in that business or that ministry and it just doesn't happen? You know, what if I don't have what it takes? And at this point, the Israelites have been in slavery for 430 years. That's a long time. 430 years. So I'm imagining, right, in 430 years, there's probably been one or two people wanting to be heroes saying, hey, I'm going to set them free, right? One or two revolts, one or two attempts at uprising. Surely in 430, through 430 years, someone has tried it and it didn't work. And the Israelites are probably a little burned out on this concept of freedom, and getting free because their hopes have been crushed. So Moses knows not only is he going to Pharaoh as a rejected person, but he's going to have to convince the Israelites that God is, in fact, telling him to do it. And Moses is thinking, I don't have any earthly reason to be the man that God uses. He doesn't have a law degree. He's not a military strategist or a head of state or a diplomat or a motivational speaker or anything that would give any sense of earthly authority and reasoning behind what God is asking him to do. And this is what I love. 
is that when he's laying this out before God, God doesn't give him a pep talk. Because honestly, I think that's what we want from God a lot, is, is a pep talk. Moses, you can do it. You've got this. No, not that God's not encouraging, because he is, and Scripture is full of encouragement. And I believe God is encouraging us daily. But in this moment, see, God knows what's going to happen if he gives Moses a pep talk. What's going to happen if he goes line by line, objection to objection? You know, because he could have said, oh, Moses, you're afraid that you stutter? You're a bad communicator? All right, be healed. He could have done that. But he didn't. Why? Well, because what would happen the next day? It would be another objection. It would be another insecurity that comes up, another fear, right? I mean, we're people. They come up. You resolve it, another issue comes up. You resolve it, another issue comes up, right? God knows that. So instead of giving Moses a pep talk, he invites him into something that he knows will sustain him over the long haul for his calling. He invites him into a perspective shift. See, what, Moses, what God says to Moses in that moment when he says, what is God going to, you know, what are they going to say? And God says, I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. The perspective shift that God is giving Moses and us is that God's I am needs to be greater than our I am. Who God is needs to become much greater than who we are, who we think we are. Because you know what? Maybe you aren't the man or the woman for the job, according to earthly standards, but God is the God for the job. Whatever it is God's asking you to do, whatever it is God's put in front of you, he's the God for the job. So it doesn't matter if you think you're the man or the woman for the job, he's the God for the job. I'm loving these hankies, y'all. You're throwing me off these hankies. So Moses had to decide to take that perspective, that God's I am will become bigger than his I am. Because it's our perspective that has to change, not our circumstances. And if we're honest, I think a lot of times we wait for our circumstances to change before we step out in faith, before we step out in obedience, before we believe that, oh yeah, maybe that is what God's nudging me to do. But God's saying, no, 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 it's a perspective change. We simply have to align ourselves to the truth of who God is. Because to be impactful in the kingdom, I want you to get this, to be impactful in the kingdom all you have to do is stop trying to be something and let God be everything. You just, you don't even need to try to be something. You don't need to try to be impressive. You don't need to try to build that resume. You step back and let God be I am. You let God be who he is. You don't need to focus on who you are. You focus on who God is. Let's move on to Exodus 4, 1 through 5. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now, why did God ask Moses what was in his hand? I mean, he's God. He already knows what's in Moses' hand. So why did God ask Moses that question? I think it's because God wanted Moses to take some inventory. Because Moses probably, like us, is well aware of everything he doesn't have, everything that's not ready yet, every place he still needs to grow. And sometimes God's just saying, hey, look at what you have instead of what you don't have. Look at what I've already given you. Look at what I've already provided instead of the places you still have need. 
Now, what's incredible, right, is that God uses that staff and he turns it into a snake and he demonstrates to Moses that he can use these ordinary, everyday, average things in supernatural, powerful ways to complete the mission. And, you know, I'm thinking if I'm Moses and I'm going into Egypt, like a staff isn't my weapon of choice. You know, maybe a law degree or an army, those would be nice. Maybe not a shepherd's staff, right? But that's what God sees in Moses' hand. And that's what God says, hey, look, what do you have? I'm going to use it. Because to us, so often, we look at what we have, and we think this is not the right tool for the job. But what Moses is about to learn in this passage of Scripture is that when the wrong tool for the job is used by God, it becomes the perfect tool for the job. So it doesn't matter when you look and you take inventory about what you have in your hand. It doesn't matter how average and basic it is in your eyes. When God gets a hold of it, supernatural things are going to happen. Because when you look at the story in its entirety, that staff is like a major role. It is a leading role in the story. God uses it to do miracles in front of Pharaoh. It parts the Red Sea. It you know, gets water from a rock in the desert. Moses most likely used it to walk up the mountain when he got the Ten Commandments. This staff plays a leading role. And when we simply surrender the ordinary things in our life to God, they become extraordinary. And, you know, we could stop there and just say, man, that's good. Yes, God, use what's in my hand. We could stop there and acknowledge that God is going to use whatever it is we have. He's going to give us a perspective shift. He's going to use the things we've got to do what he's asking us to do. But I want to take a second and I want to look a little bit further because I think when I read that story, I see that there's something going on a little bit behind the scenes. Now, if you remember what I said earlier, Moses grew up in the house of Pharaoh. Moses grew up in the palace. His hand was never supposed to be holding a staff. In his hand, when he looked at that hand, I think it stung a little bit when God said, hey, what's in your hand? Because I think Moses knew that what was originally supposed to be in his hand was a scepter, not a staff. Because that staff isn't just because he was a shepherd. That staff represents the fact that he had a massive moral failure, that he killed a man and he had to leave where he was and go to the wilderness. And he exchanged that scepter for a staff. And that staff represents the failure, the place of pain, the guilt, the shame, the sense of loss. So God isn't just saying, hey, I'm going to use your everyday gifts to do supernatural things. He's showing us that he can even use our failures to bring about his promises. That nothing we do or have done puts us outside of the will and the abilities and capabilities of God. Amen. The staff represented more than an occupation or skill. It represented his story. I think if a lot of us are honest, we think when we look at some of the things we hold in our hands, some of them may be failures. Some of you may say, man, I feel like I'm holding this divorce. I'm holding this bad business deal. Or some of us may say, maybe it's not a failure that we did, but ways that we feel like life failed us. And maybe we resent the things in our hand. Have you ever done that? You look at the things in your life and you feel like you resent them a little bit. You know, the things, the story of, you know, maybe you were abused and God healed you of it, but you hate the fact that you were abused in the first place. And you resent that maybe that's part of your testimony. For me, I mean, I had a stroke at 36, a pretty big one, that took me out and I'm still recovering. And after I had the stroke, I got invited to speak lots of places and be on podcasts and interviews. And you know, 
As much as I could say, thank you, God, that you're using the stroke, if I'm honest, there's a part of me that resents the fact that that's what's giving me a voice. Right? I want to be invited to speak because I, you know, solved world hunger or something like that, not because I'm a 37-year-old who has the body of an 80-year-old woman. Right? That's not what I want to be in my hand, but that's what's in my hand. And God's extending to me an opportunity and to all of us to say, hey, you see that place that feels like a failure in your life, that staff that you're holding, guess what? Your failure has a future. And I think that's a word for someone in here, and I don't know who, but your failure has a future. God wants to redeem what feels shameful, what feels less than, what feels inadequate about us, to see his purposes done on the earth. Amen. Could you go ahead and stand with me? And if you feel comfortable, I'm not trying to be weird, but if you feel comfortable to just open your hands as a, just a symbolic way of saying, God, I want to give you what's in my hand. I want to just pray over us that we would be a people who believe God's promise that he's going to be with us, that we would be a people who receive that perspective shift, that his I am is greater than our I am, and that we believe that staff that we're holding, that God can use it in mighty ways when he gets a hold of it. God, what a privilege, what an honor to be your people, to be your children, to be invited into this incredible story of what you're doing on the earth, God. And we come to you, Lord, and with open hands and open hearts, we just say, here we are, God. Would you use us for whatever your plans and purposes, God? No matter how small we think we are, God, we just say you are the God for the job. Lord, and so we believe the promise. Would you help us believe the promise? that you're going to be with us. Would you help us shift our perspective from who we are to who you are? And would we have faith and courage to take you at your word, that you will redeem and restore all things in our lives, that you will make beauty from ashes, that this failure in our life that we see when we look in our hands, God, would we have the faith to say, no, that's a future. That's a future testimony. We love you, Jesus. Amen.